if we really want to have strong innovation, if we really want to have efficiencies, then you've got to let the markets do some of the work. Not mm-hmm. all of the work, and you know, I'm very definitely not a fan of getting rid of all regulation. But um, I think that a lot of the inefficiencies in the charitable sector have arisen because there isn't enough competition. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listener, you know the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic and act more sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the podcast. It makes a huge difference. And today I am in central London with the chief executive of The Four, a collective of uh individuals, philanthropists, business who are really keen on improving philanthropy, getting involved in philanthropy and supporting some charities and worthwhile causes. I am here with Mary Rose Gunn, who is the chief executive of The Four. Today we're going to be talking about this collective of individuals and businesses coming together to improve the world around us and to enhance the philanthropy market as it were. And uh, without further ado, Mary Rose. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Quite the opposite. Thank you for being on. Tell me a little bit about The Four. What What is it all about? So The Four is, in the simplest of explanations is that we're a seed funder for the charity sector in the UK. We set up uh, the organization just under three years ago on the back of a four-year pilot, which we had established to try and see if we could prove that it was possible to provide funding and support to really exciting, innovative small charities and social enterprises Mm -hmm. in a way that would really have high impact both for us as a funder and our partners who we work with, but also could really help unlock change in these small organizations. We based the pilot on the fact that my experience of the charity sector when we started in 2012 I'd been working in the charity sector for five years both had been fundraising and had also been giving away a bit of money and I had noticed that there was a huge gap in the UK in the marketplace in that there was basically no seed funding for small organizations and that was having some serious knock-on detrimental Uh, effects, I would argue, on civil society as a whole in the UK. The funding sector is generally, trusts and foundations are quite often quite traditional. They have quite uh, rigid criteria Mm -hmm. and categories for the things that they want to support. And this can work really well when you're making larger grants and and it means that they are really uh, strong in their expertise in specific areas and specific fields. But when you are trying to generate new organizations and to support innovation and to support change makers on the ground, it means that it actually can be very hard for these sorts of people and these sorts of organizations to get hold of the support they need, particularly if they are solutions that are coming out of the grassroots. So we set up the the four pilot to try and prove that you could open up the filter, you could make it much easier for people to get in the front door, as it were. Um, and in doing that, you would be in a situation to actually 
unlock more change with your money mm -hmm. than if you are really prescriptive when you're talking about working with particularly small mm -hmm. organizations. Mm -hmm. So we would align ourselves with the venture capital angel investor stage of the, the, the market if you're right. looking at a, pri right. a private sector analogy, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, we're very charity-led. It's absolutely crucial to the design of the model is that uh, we are all about empowering people who have come up with the ideas and the solutions to do what they need to do with our support. So it's about supporting them and helping them to both work out what is the right strategy for themselves and then provide them with some funding and also expertise to help them create the change that they are, they are mission driven to do. Excellent. And before we drill into some of these things that you're talking about here, tell me a little bit about your background. And so you, how did you get into this? How did you land this role? And uh... so I had quite a, a, a random background in many ways. I uh, did a history degree and then I worked in the media for a while and I worked in politics for a bit as a researcher. And I realized uh, was spent a lot of time, spent a lot of time working with uh, charities, doing some uh, international development work when I was in politics. And I realized that I actually wanted to move into the, the civil se sector. Mm -hmm. uh, and I happened to meet the founder of the Umbrella Foundation for the Fall, uh, which is an organization called the Bulldog Trust, and was offered a job by him. Mm -hmm. At the time, uh, the organization didn't really have very much going on. It had this wonderful house, which we're in today, Two Temple Place. Uh, and uh, the main remit for me when I started was to look at how we could give Two Temple Place a public mission. It's, we now run it as a cultural philanthropic space. We do lots of exhibitions and, and um, other charity events as well as private hire. Um, but in the process of essentially setting up the organization, I myself was basically building a startup. So I was experiencing a lot of the problems that people who are trying to set up small charities and social enterprises are facing, because that was exactly what I was doing myself. Um, and on the side, we were giving away a little bit of money as a foundation. We didn't have a huge amount of uh, money to give away, but mm -hmm. we had a small amount. So I was, and because we have this, this beautiful house, we get invited into conversations with other funders. So I was on the one hand fundraising for my uh, social enterprise, and on the other hand, I was being treated as a funder. And so had, I think, quite an unusual opportunity to view things from both sides of the fence. And that was where the whole idea from the four came from, was my experience in listening to small charities from the perspective of being somebody who had the chance to give away a bit of money, but to also being so affiliated and mm -hmm. feeling so aligned with them that because of my own experiences were exactly the same as the experiences that they were having. Yeah. And I just became very frustrated and thought this is just wrong because I mean, what we were doing was in no way comparable with what some of the absolutely fantastic people that um, I was meeting are doing in terms of creating social change. But it felt really very morally and ethically not didn't sit very comfortably with me the fact that people were when they thought of me as a funder and in the few conversations that I was having where I was in a position of some power in that I had a 
the opportunity to, to gatekeep, really, I suppose, to mm-hmm. the trustees of the Bulldog Trust. But I was being treated as somebody who deserved to be lauded in some way when, from my experience, I I knew nothing. I was such a, a, a green person in terms of grant making. That is what is so exciting when you meet people who are running organisations mm-hmm. that are helping homeless people get into safe and long-term sustainable accommodation or working people who are working with children with behavioural difficulties. They are the people who really know what they're doing. And to be in a position where you might be able to help them, be it with some money or some advice or some expertise that you could plug them into, it's one of extreme, it's a position of huge privilege. Mm -hmm. And it felt to me so wrong that in so many instances, the power balance wasn't as, in my view, it wasn't quite right and it, mm-hmm. it, it didn't feel comfortable. So I wanted to set up a, a funding organisation that treated the organisations that we work with in terms of uh, giving grants to much more as how a, a, a business that an investor is working with would treat that business. And that he, if you're going to, he or she, if you're going to invest in something, you want them to succeed because that's how you're going to make money sure and from our perspective as a funder we want all of the organizations to succeed who we support because we believe in what they're doing in there in its entirety we're not just picking off one program to support we fundamentally believe and support the people leading the organization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know we definitely can be a critical friend and we hope that we are definitely a friend but also a critical friend uh, but what we need them way more than they need us because we with the resources that we have want to create social change and we can't do that without these people who know way more about how to do that on the ground than we do and these organizations that you're supporting they as you mentioned they're quite small yeah so the uh when we set up the 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 fund we put in place two criteria which are extremely broad. The organisations that we are looking to work with have to have turnover of under half a million pounds mm-hmm. a year and they have to be registered in the UK. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, anything, and when I say registered, I mean registered as a non-profit. Mm-hmm. So they can be a social enterprise, but a registered social enterprise or a charity. Um, but apart from that, anything goes. Right. So. They are open to, and we invite them to tell us what they're doing and why it's interesting and why it's making change. Mm-hmm. Now, if I play devil's advocate, right, absolutely go for it. A lot of the conversations revolve around the need to look for efficiencies mm-hmm. and try to create momentum, a tipping point, move the needle, and really. A lot of the emphasis is about supporting big organizations where you might think you have efficiencies and better ability to mobilize. What would you say if someone says, uh, well, you know, supporting small charities sounds good, but actually it might be doing a disservice to the field uh, or to the sector in terms of philanthropy or a specific thematic area? What's the, uh, what's the counter argument to that? My counter argument to, that, to that is is quite simple in that uh, I think that it, Nobody would argue in the private sector that you shouldn't have startup organizations and businesses. The only people who should be operating should be the big players. 
And I would say exactly the same for the social sector in that if we really want to have strong innovation, if we really want to have efficiencies, then you've got to let the markets do some of the work, not mm-hmm. all of the work. And, you know, I'm very definitely not a fan of getting rid of all regulation. But um, I think that a lot of the inefficiencies in the charitable sector have arisen because there isn't enough competition. Mm-hmm. The big organisations, and in the UK, the top 30 charities have been the top 30 charities for the last 30 years. Um, and if that was the FTSE 100 or the um, NASDAQ or you know whatever um, equivalent international um, business index equivalent, that country would be really, really concerned. Whereas in the charity sector, it's seen in some ways, certainly in the UK, as something to celebrate is the fact that, oh, look at these enormous organisations. They're still enormous organisations. But actually, you know, our, in, I mean, in business, it's generally accepted that it's very difficult to be the best at innovating when you're huge. And it's much better to, what, what, what often happens is that the big businesses, they let the small ones innovate and then they buy them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so if we want to make sure that we've got the best solutions to social problems, we need to make sure that innovation that happens on the ground has the chance to feed in and to, to become known about and seen by the bigger players so that they can either you know incorporate these small organizations into their own operations or steal their ideas or or, or the the smaller ones can get to a size where they can actually genuinely compete with the larger mm-hmm. ones and, and do things better and more effectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What sort of grants do you make in terms of size and, and multi-year commitments? And what, what does that look like? At the moment, grant size is up to £30,000 over up to three years. Mm-hmm. So it's not a huge amount of money. And how, but that's partly restricted at the moment on the number of partners that we have in terms of funding partners. Um, the, how the grant is structured is dictated by the charity or the applicant, the mm-hmm. social enterprise. So they can say, look, and, and the, our grants are all about creating transformational change in these organisations. It's about helping them to unlock some kind of future sustainability or impact or scale, what, mm-hmm. whatever is right for them, basically. Um, and therefore, we trust the organisations to know best how they want the money. Do they want all of it up front in year one? Would it actually be more helpful to have some in year one, some in year two, some in year three, mm-hmm. have a tapering? You know, it, it's like the small business loan analogy for us in that if you're a small business, when you go to the bank, you tell the bank how much you want to borrow and why you want to borrow that much over that time period and mm-hmm. when you want to pay it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for us, it's the same with the grant is that the charities are the ones who know best and uh, what they need and when they need it. And as part of our assessment process, which is essentially a strategic review process with the organisations, where they work with our very, very skilled assessors who mm-hmm. are doing this on a, 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 it's an almost pro bono basis. And they are people who have got backgrounds. For example, we have one assessor who used to be a partner at one of the, the big accountancy firms. We have another assessor who used to work in private equity. We have another assessor who used to run uh, a social investment um, organization in the UK. They're very, very skilled individuals. And so it means that when they are working with the applicants on what 
they want as the structure of the funding and also helping them work out what are the KPIs for the funding term. The organisation is basically being put through a real, a really rigorous strategic review process. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's obviously in terms of the time that the assessors can spend, it, it's not a huge amount of time. But when you've got somebody as skilled as our assessors is, you can do a huge amount of work in a couple of hours in terms of working out, you know, where is it that you're really heading? What are you really trying to do in terms of your mission? And what it means for us is that when the organisation sets themselves the KPIs and says, right, you know, we are going to have achieved X by the end of the first year of funding and Y by the end of the second year, monitoring that is best practice for the organisation, but it also means that our funding is completely aligned with where the organisation wants to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think can be troublesome in a lot of other more traditional funding models in that when funders are trying to achieve certain specific sector aims like for example if they say right we want to make sure that x number of children are doing much better at primary school by the age of 11 if they're working with organizations that are not just about increasing educational achievement in children. They're also about making sure that if they come from a families where, where they come from families where the parents don't speak English as the first language, they might be helping with uh, integrating the parents into um, a system of their refugees or whatever it may be. But in terms of that as an organisation, if you're a funder and you're just looking at educational achievements of the kids, you're basically asking the organization to concentrate on one very small aspect of its work when actually the reason why the organization would argue the children are doing better at school is because they're helping in all of these other areas and that i think is something that we aren't really talking about enough in the funding sector is the fact that a lot of funders are essentially encouraging mission drift in charities and in social enterprises who they then will criticize for that mission drift at a later date mm-hmm. and the funding sector as a whole i think really needs to start thinking about this a little bit more carefully particularly in light of social investment and how there is enormous amounts of money that people want to put into social investment and impact investing but a lot of social investors are crying out for pipeline and they are very concerned that there aren't enough organisations coming through that are really strong candidates for social mm-hmm. investment, partly because the governance isn't strong enough and they say, you know, these organisations aren't focused enough on what they're really trying to achieve. But if you have been brought up on a diet of grant funding from different funders who all want you to do something slightly different, we are generating this generation of organisations that are contorting themselves to meet funders' needs and therefore are not really going to be um, regular likely candidates for social investment. So there's two sides to the equation here. Mm. You have the funders on the one hand or investors and you also have those who are on the receiving end. Yeah. Now tell me a little bit about the deal flow origination. You mentioned pipeline. Yeah. How challenging is it to find charities and, and worthy causes that have the merit and enthusiasm and uh, and ambition. How, how difficult is it to find those and, and fill up that pipeline? From our perspective, very, very easy. There are 
around about 165,000 charities in the UK, and that's not including there are social enterprises, kicks, and CIOs on top of that. Uh, and of those 165,000, around 90%, I think it's 87%, have got an income of under half a million. So that's at least 140,000 just to start with are uh, eligible. Um, and we, when you're giving money away, it's quite easy to, to spread the word. And we run three funding rounds a year. We take registration at the beginning of each funding round. And when did those happen? Tell, tell us a little bit about the funding um, rounds. Funding rounds are, operate in line with the academic terms. So we do spring, summer and autumn. And we take registration for each funding round uh, about four weeks before the funding round application deadline, which is at the beginning. So, for example, in the autumn one, it's the, the deadline is the beginning of September to get your application in, but we take registrations at the end of July. And uh, we limit the number of registrations that we take. Registering takes a couple of minutes, um, but we limit the number of registrations that we take so we can make sure that we give every applicant the attention that we feel it deserves. And it's, it's not ideal that we have to cap the number of registrations, but we feel that it's much better this way round than putting in place a form, a complicated form, that is what a lot of other funders end up doing in order to try and reduce the number of applicants they get. Um, because the time spent on filling in the form is time that is often wasted for the charity. Mm -hmm. So um, we take registrations on a first-come, first-served basis for anyone who has got turnover of under half a million and is registered as a UK non-profit organisation. Um, uh, but they can have activities globally. They just have to be registered here in the UK. Um, and uh, they then are invited to, once they're successfully registered, send in three pages of information. We don't have specific questions. We don't have uh, word counts. But it's about who are... The organizations what are they doing why is it important and then how would funding from us unlock some sort of change in the organization so it's encouraging them to do a bit of basic strategic thinking but because this three pages is only about getting the organization a meeting and we also have some very basic financial information on their size but because it's about unlocking a meeting for them rather than actually the money at this point it means that we can give meetings, our assessors can give meetings to people who the three pages can have been written without a paragraph break. But if they just get a sense that this might be an interesting organisation with an interesting solution to a compelling need, they are willing to sit down with somebody uh, on the basis of that and say, right, let's, let's see, let's give this person a chance or these people a chance. And we've had organisations that have, we had, for example, uh, an organisation that was run by three young women in the northeast of England who had all left school at 15. And they were, had set up a community uh, centre where they were raising aspirations in their peers who were coming up behind them and were doing an absolutely fantastic job of making sure that people stayed in school. They were getting the right kind of training, mentoring to take up better mm -hmm. job opportunities than other people. And the reason why they set this organised out was because they felt they didn't, in life, hadn't had the chances that they should have done if they had stayed longer in education and made different decisions. But because they'd left education so young, you know, their ability to fill in a complicated form was not particularly strong. But were they the best people? Are they the best people to be 
changing the lives of the people coming up behind her, them inspiring them, being role models to them? Absolutely, undoubtedly, yes, mm -hmm. because they know their market. They know how to get people on board, how to change the way they think, how to persuade them that, yes, it might seem annoying and boring and slightly pointless to be doing a history GCSE, learning about the Tudors, but actually, if you don't get that GCSE, it's going to hold you back in the long term, and it's worth working hard in school and, and trying to get those qualifications, or whatever each different situation mm -hmm. might be. Um, and those sorts of, using that example, those sorts of people, they, they don't necessarily have the, the experience and the professional background that a lot of people who've worked in business have about right, how do we write a business plan, how do we think through what we're trying to go and what we're trying to achieve. But that doesn't mean they're not incredibly entrepreneurial and it doesn't mean that with just the right, somebody who's asking the right questions and helping them uh, to work out what are their clear messages and what are their clear aims. Once they've done that, they can't go mm -hmm. it alone and then absolutely keep running towards those, those goals because they, without question, definitely can. But it's about plugging these organizations at the right point into the bit of money and also a bit of expertise. So we connect the organizations we work with to ongoing experience and skills and training and to try and basically make sure that they really are much more robust in the long term and can achieve what they're trying to do. So presumably somebody who comes up to you for funding today, you would not want them, you would not want them coming back for funding again in three years time. You want them to graduate onto something else bigger and better or is that fair to say? We, uh, ideally yes because that would be wonderful they've shown that they've hugely succeeded um but we have no specific rules the only apart from the fact that if you receive funding from us you can't apply again during the period that you're receiving the mm -hmm. grant from us but definitely we have made the odd repeat grant but the bar is higher because so much of what we are giving in terms of value we like to think we hope is not just about the money it's also about the wraparound support it's about being part of the family of the four once you're in it and you don't even need to get funding to to take advantage of the the training and the skills mm -hmm. um so the bar is higher basically to come back a second time round. but the because we are aiming to do transformational grants we wouldn't we certainly wouldn't fund them to do the same again mm -hmm. because the whole point is the Funding is supposed to move you forward in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And that might just be that, you know, you're a small community organization and you've been operating hand to mouth for years. And if only you had a bit of an injection of cash, you could set up a couple of slightly more sustainable income streams or you could get yourself some decent IT systems, which means you'd spend a lot less time on the day-to-day -day admin of something. So you could spend more time on actually helping people and, and mm -hmm. increasing your beneficiary numbers. Um, or it might be you've got something that's really scalable and you want to give it a go at scaling. But either way, the funding that we are offering is intended to get you over that hurdle and get you further down the line. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. not business as usual. We wouldn't want to fund it again. But I mean, in the, as an example of something that we have funded twice, we funded uh, something, uh, an organization called the now called the cares family when we first funded it, it was called north london cares and we gave them some money to set up south london cares they are bringing together elderly people in the community with younger people for social clubs it's hugely successful the founder is now an obama fellow and they came back again for funding having 
franchised once and said, look, this is going so well, we want to do more of this, but we need a really decent computer system and it's really hard to get hold of funding for that sort of thing. So we did give them a second grant um, as a, a, an organization to, to bring on board a, a CRM system and they are now national. Excellent. And they are now called the CARES family because they're no longer just in London. So that was an example, but it is very unusual. Great, great. And what about the other side of the equation? So the funders, the yeah. people who are also part of the four family, but yeah. who are either philanthropists or corporates. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about those folks. Um, we, we, we love the model because it's so collaborative and we are hopeful and certainly the people that we work with feel this that we are all getting becoming so much more valuable as a sum of our parts than we are we are individually so we work with businesses we work with individual philanthropists we work with um individuals who are just giving skills but the idea is that we provide through our model three things to these organizations we provide them with money and we provide them with skill support and we provide them with help with impact management which is increasingly mm -hmm. important because funders are all asking about what's the impact of the organizations that are working in this sector quite rightly um, but what the collaboration means is that anyone who comes to us can provide whatever they are able to provide safe in the knowledge that the other parts are being provided by somebody else. So, for example, when we're working with businesses, uh, they will come to us and say, look, we are really interested in using our corporate philanthropy as a way to small, small charities, but we don't have the resources to be able to vet the thousands and thousands of small charities out there. Um, and we also would love to plug some of our employees into really interesting engagement opportunities. And... Uh, we don't know how to go about it doing that. So for us, you know, that's an ideal partner and we have some fantastic corporates that we're working with uh, because we can help put the money into the funding pot so that, and we get their employees involved in helping to make the funding decisions, sitting on our funding panels, over reviewing strategy of these organizations and risk. Um, and we're also plugging their employees in to become mentors, to sit on the boards of these small organizations because if you run a small charity that's based out of a, an, even just an outer London suburb mm -hmm. and you set it up because you grew up on an estate where there was not much, there weren't many prospects for you in terms of um, employability and achievement, it's high like, highly likely that you probably don't know someone who's been to business school. But having someone who sits on your board who went to business school is going to be fantastic for you in the long run. So it's really exciting that we get the chance to connect partners in with opportunities that they otherwise would never find. Because if you're somebody who works in a business in the city, it's very difficult for you to find an interesting small charity that's looking for someone like you to come and sit on their board. Mm -hmm. um, so it means that for the people that we're working with who are not the social entrepreneurs, we're providing them with a vetted pipeline, basically, that they can't really get elsewhere. And it's all curated in a very low, light-touch way, but so that everybody is getting the most out of their own involvement. And does a corporate or a philanthropist who comes on and mm -hmm. says, look, I want to engage with you guys, do they have to pay a membership fee or anything like that or any... We have a no, we don't have membership fees. We have a number of different partnership models depending on what people are looking for. Um, and it, I mean, it, 
we liken it to the Dragon's Den. If you want to come and sit in the Dragon's Den, you need to bring some money with you. Mm -hmm. But uh, fundamentally, we have a range of different support from different uh, individuals and different philanthropists and, and funders and businesses, which means that we can be really very flexible. So while absolutely we are um, fundraising in terms of we need to increase the grant pot so we can support more of the organisations that are coming to us because we are inundated and our funding rounds, um, the registration is always oversubscribed. Um, it also uh, means that um, we can, you know, if we, we work with some businesses who are at the moment, hopefully in the long term this might change, but at the moment they're just about connecting their employees in with skills, mm -hmm. um, skilled volunteering opportunities. Um, so we are we're sort of open to all ideas, mm -hmm. um, but but fundamentally for this whole system to work, and for for the charities and the social enterprises to want to come to us, we have to be able to offer the funding mm -hmm. piece. And the four itself is a registered charity. Yeah, the four itself is part of the Bulldog Trust, right? Which I also run. Mm -hmm. I still run. Um, so yeah, that's a registered charity. And therefore, in terms of your in terms of the funding requirements for the four itself, yeah. that's not something that's contingent on new partners coming in or otherwise. You're, well, you're certainly not for the next three years. Right. So yeah, we've got uh, all of our funding. We, we know that we are secure for the next three years. What are you really excited about now? What's, um, and what does success look like to you in the next 10 years? I think I'll answer the first question first. Um, what we're really excited about is the fact that we, a couple of months ago, we just published a report into looking at our grantees in the pilot and how they were doing three years, four years down the line. Um, and it was something that we had spent a long time working at. How can we try and show that this way of funding, which is very different to the way most others operate in, within the sector, um, but that it is, it's effective. Because anecdotally, we were hearing very, very positive things from both successful applicants and unsuccessful applicants who were delighted by the fact that we give feedback to, for example, every organisation that applies that's absolutely integral to our model is helping organisations learn from the process, even if they're not successful. Um, and how can we try and show that this is a really good way of supporting small organisations and giving away money? And so we uh, worked with a data spe specialist on trying to benchmark our portfolio, which is, as you can imagine, because we have this very open filter, it's very, very broad ranging in terms of the areas in which the organisations are working. Um, uh, yes, about 50 work in youth and education and uh, are supporting poverty and disadvantage but there are also so many of them working in multiple sectors and we you know we have the odd outlier that is doing something that's quite dry but incredibly important like working with data and trying to help as a sort of background organization help charities use their data more effectively to improve their and um, uh, prove their impact um, but how could we as a funder show that we were making effective grants and we decided to see if we could benchmark our organizations like uh, any good uh, private sector fund would do mm -hmm. uh, and so we worked with the data specialist to create an algorithm that scraped data off the charity commission website choosing uh, organizations that were using I think it was five or six criteria 
in terms of similar size, similar sector, similar um, location, similar longevity um, to the organisations that we funded individually in the pilot. And then we looked at how each of the grant pilot grantees had performed against their own bespoke benchmark group. And the results were completely fantastic, better than we could ever hoped for in terms of proving that not only was this very open filter model very effective in finding organisations that were on an upward trajectory, uh, but they also were going on to flourish after we funded them. And the average three years after the grant was an 800% improvement over benchmark in terms of income. This absolutely isn't perfect because it also makes us look like we're looking for organisations that are scaling and we are very definitely not just looking for organisations that are looking to scale in our due diligence process. We're looking for organisations that have got a compelling answer mm -hmm. to a compelling need. And so if they are then going on to do more of what is much needed, you know, we're delighted with that, but it, it, the, the, the methodology is, is definitely not it slightly skews what it looks like we're looking for in terms of mm -hmm. our applicants. But for us, we were really, really thrilled with the fact that it shows that the money is going to really onwardly successful organisations. Mm -hmm. And that as the first ever funder, it's been reported a number of times in the charity press that we are the first ever funder that has even tried to do this. Um, and that by trying to do this, we are hopefully opening up more conversations. We published all of the data, including all of the underlying... Um, Where can somebody get a hold of that data? It, it's on our website. Which is? Uh, www.thefor.org. Okay. Uh, so we are being very open and transparent about it. And you know, without question, this is not necessarily the right way if you're wanting to make huge grants to people you can't work with assessors who are not skilled in specific areas you know if you want to make half a million pound grant to one education charity you need somebody who knows about education charities but when you are making grants of the size that we are it is like a bank offering small business loans it is not crucial that the bank manager knows about how to run a sock business mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it what's much more important is the bank manager knows how to work out and ask the right questions about does the person leading this organization have a vision for it, know where it's trying to go, have the experience that would suggest that they are the right person for the job. And uh, success for the next 10 years? What does that look like? It's a really interesting question, that question, because on the one hand, for me, so much of what we're trying to do is create systems change in the sector. We want to get funders to think differently about how they fund and to think about the effect of their processes and their practices on the organizations that they're looking to support so success in 10 in the next 10 years for me in so many ways will be indi indicated by whether the sector is moving in the a more philanthropy positive, space. the philanthropy space is moving in a more positive direction i mean at the moment there was a recent study by the university of bath that found that £1.1 billion a year in the UK alone is spent on applying for grant funding. And of that, 63% is unsuccessful. So that's around about £700 million a year, which is the budget of the National Lottery, of the Big Lottery, is completely wasted 
inefficiently spent resource. And if we could, and I don't know how we would ever prove this, but if we could have managed to change the way that people operate and think about how they're operating, then that for me would be hugely successful. But for us personally, as a sort of much more measurable target, I think there needs to be 15 million pounds a year that is available for small organizations to access with a completely open filter, no barriers to access and much more democratically awarded in terms of funding because the current systems favor people who have got strong levels of literacy and who are connected in and have the confidence to apply for grants. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can make 15 million, say, a, available a year in support for small organizations, I think we would find that we had a much healthier sector in general, because as our benchmarking study shows, the organizations that we are supporting are going on to achieve really great things without us being able to give them any more support after our first grant. And if we can really make sure that we have a much more liquid civil society and uh, charity sector, so there's much more movement within it of smaller players who deserve to getting bigger and the larger ones being Mm -hmm. Uh, challenged in a, a really positive way, I think that we will have achieved a lot and that UK society particularly will be in a much better state. In terms of a key takeaway for our listeners, what um, what would that be? What would you like our listeners to remember after they finish listening to this episode today? I'd like them to remember that it's really important to trust people and that if we want to change society and live in the sort of ecosystem that we all want to live in we have to give people the agency to change their own circumstances perfect perfect well look mary rose thank you so very much for having me here at uh, a two temple place wonderful to uh, to have you on the podcast and to hear so much about your work and uh, here's to continued success Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.